All right, take your Bible, join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, entitled, Help for Hard Times. The heartbeat for addressing this passage today is to provide some convictional clarity to help you endure the crucible of difficulty. Um, I had the privilege of preaching back in June, and I preached these same verses. So if you're a person who puts notes in your Bible and say, Harry Walls, June 26, 2022, you're right. I was there eight months ago. And I'm back for part two. Uh, I never get to preach this side of uh, this passage. Um, The lens is different. The first time we journeyed through this significant text, and just by way of context, this is a training season. Jesus has commissioned 12 men to follow him and become like him and be commissioned into ministry for him. They are being trained. They are listening to unmatched and amazing words, and they are witnessing unrivaled works. They've watched him heal the leper and the lame, the issue of blood. They've watched him liberate a demoniac that nobody could tolerate. They have watched him feed thousands with a few loaves and fishes. They've been a witness of the resurrection of a 12-year-old girl resurrecting her to life after death. They're watching, they're learning, and they're growing. This passage is a critical juncture in their preparation. It is core because it is a critical conviction they must own to be successful, not only in the earthly fellowship of Christ, but when He departs and ascends to heaven in resurrected glory, they will be the followers who perpetuate and propagate the kingdom of God. And they will need this clarity. This is an essential lesson, this passage. And the fundamental foundation of it is revelation about the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And I can imagine at the end of this training exercise, the Lord sitting down with His disciples saying, I want to tell you who I am. I want to make sure you don't miss any of this. And in Mark chapter 6, He's going to reveal by way of His words and His work that He has sovereign authority. He tells the crowds to... depart after they were seeking to force him to be king. He tells the disciples, he commands them to get into the boat and row to the other side. He's exercising his authority, not their will, not you, my disciples, your will, but my will will be done. He's also expressing the human priority because after he dispatches the multitude and the disciples, he departs to the mountain alone to pray. In his humanity, he is expressing the human priority. I need what you need, time with God, refreshing, solitude, reflection, worship, communion. Every human being needs to seek solace with the Father who provides grace, comfort, communion, and intimacy. He also, and this is the heart of this passage... It is meant to communicate His unrivaled capacity, His divinity, 
Because for whatever reason, despite the feeding and the healing and the liberating, they hadn't drawn the conclusion that you are God and you can do what only God can do. Hence this exercise. And so at the end of it, instead of saying, what manner of man is this? They will say, certainly this is the Son of God. What they hadn't learned through the feeding of the 5,000 because of the hardness of their heart the callousness of their insight, they will now recognize an essential lesson about who Jesus is, and not just that He's God, but as God, He sees them even in the middle of the night. He cares for them, seeing them straining at the oars. He comes to them with His presence, His words, and His unrivaled comfort to rescue them. I am God, and I rescue. I see I care, I come, and I comfort. I am your divine companion, and I can do what only God can do. This morning's message is to complement your convictions about who He is with understanding and insight with regard to who we are. Propensities in our humanity that are revealed in this passage with followers of Jesus Christ, the things that we are inclined to, we have a propensity for, that are challenges as we fulfill our responsibilities as agents of the kingdom. I've called this help for hard times, so that you will stand in the thick of difficulty, in the midst of it, and you will step out in the midst of it. You will be faithful and fruitful. You will enable by your confidence and empowering grace of the present Christ to fulfill and sustain through the difficulty which you're inclined to abandon because it's too hard. Listen, people are giving up and caving in in our culture and even in the context of the church. Frustration, dissatisfaction, discouragement, disillusionment with marriage, with ministry, with God, with family, and with the incidents of suicide and self-injury with life, because it's hard. It's dark. And some of you come today, and some of you witnessing online are living today in very dark and hard places. You're tempted to give up. You feel like you're doing what God's called you to do. You feel like you're where God wanted you to be, ministry, marriage, family, and it's not working. And you're tempted to abandon. You're tempted to give up. And not only do you need to recognize who He is, you need to recognize lessons about life for who we are. So that's the lens. Key lessons to be learned about disciples Lessons about you and for you. Lessons to be learned for the challenging places of life and ministry. For when you're doing what you think you should do and are going nowhere, when you've been trying for a long time and want to quit, when it seems hopeless, when it seems helpless, these are lessons for life for you. Help for hard times. Let's read the passage. I'll I'll briefly commentate along the way, and then I want to focus on some lessons, crucible convictions. And crucible, you know what that is? That's a hot place, a pressure place in order to purify alloy, to remove the dross, 
so that something coming forth is pure and refined and precious. Hard times are crucible spaces designed to make you better, to purify your faith, and to enrich your maturity and character. Mark 6, verse 45. After the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children, probably upwards to 20 or 25,000, after Jesus helped them see, I can do a lot with a little. If you'll give it to me for them, I will use it, and I'll do more than you expect that I can do. Verse 45, immediately after that. Jesus made, that's his authority, his disciples forced them, compelled them to get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself forcefully was sending the crowd away. Remember, they wanted to make him king. That's John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 15, parallel passage. After bidding them farewell, affirming his command, He left for the mountain to pray, the human priority. Verse 47, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. Matthew says several stadia, many stadia, three to four miles out into the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. So in the darkest part of the night, he he says that he, was, he came to them in the fourth watch of the night, 3 to 6 a.m., darkest part of the night. Though it's dark, though they're far away in his divinity, he sees them. And because he saw them straining, here's the main verb, he came to them. He came to them walking on the sea. Key phrase and why we're back in Mark is because this is the fundamental commentary on this exercise. He intended to pass by them. Not because he didn't care about them. Not because he intended to show off to them. Not because he was playing with them. Because he was revealing his glory to them. This is divine revelation. And we looked at the Old Testament last time when uh, Moses was commissioned by God to lead the people of God after their disobedience and stubbornness and loss. Moses said, will you go with me? Yes, I will go with you. Show me your glory. And the glory of God passed by, revealing God, affirming Moses' belief, conviction, passion about his calling. God revealing God as a validation of his presence, his power, his capacity in the commissioning of a leader to serve his purposes. Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19, great victory at Mount Carmel, great victory calling the heavens to rain after three years of drought. He's threatened by Ahab and Jezebel. He flees to the wilderness. He prays, God, I want to die. Despite the victory, the threat, the loss, the discouragement, the isolation, take me. 1 Kings 19, God saying to Elijah, come to the mouth of the cave. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to reveal my glory. I'm going to show the power, the mountains that shake, the fire, the consuming capacity of God, and the still small voice of God. And at the end of that exchange, Elijah goes back to doing what he should be doing because God passed by. That's this. This is the New Testament version of discouraged disciples 
who need a revelation, need clarity, need conviction that the one they are with is not a man, but God the man, the man who is God, the one who can do what only God can do. Only God can tread on the waters. Only God would say, it is I, which is ego and me, I am. So the passage continues, he intended to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. And they cried out, for, all, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, I am. Do not be afraid. It's a divine statement of self-identity, self-existence. It is I. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Critical to the understanding of this exercise, verse 52, the reason they were astonished is they had not, up until this time, gained any insight from the incident of the loaves because their heart had been hardened. They were boneheaded. They were calloused of soul. They didn't get what they should have gotten, so they lived this experience because they needed to get what this training exercise was designed to provide. Certainly, this is the Son of God. Lessons for us about us. Part two, so you will hold up in the thick of it and stand out and step out in the midst of it. Some conviction, crucible truths. First truth to help you in hard times, what I believe Jesus would have us learn and know as a conviction a crucible conviction. Here it is. When you obey, it is not always easy. When you obey, it is not always easy. We begin with the perspective and the truth to this truth to combat the propensity, the common and very natural propensity in our humanity to think that when it's hard, we must be out of God's will. It's too hard. There's too much resistance. We must be on the wrong path. The opposition's too tough. If we were in God's will, the wind would be in the sail. The advance would be effortless and undeniable. And I believe that what we should learn about our humanity, a lens on the disciples, is our propensity to think we're not where we are supposed to be. And they are exactly where they're supposed to be. Verse 45, he made them get into the boat. He bid them farewell. He told them what to do. He confirmed he wanted them to do it. They were in his will. They were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. And yet they were going nowhere. They were battered, Matthew says, by the waves. Many stadia from land. The wind was contrary The words used in both texts have to do, they were tortured, they were straining so hard at the oars that their muscles were burning, their hearts were fading, and they were troubled and tired. It was difficult, and yet they were exactly where they were supposed to be. I touched on this, but I want to punctuate this. Because ministry, marriage, life is hard. 
It's a fallen world, and it's a difficult world, and there are many adversaries. There's inward challenges. There's relational challenges. But listen, did Jesus face resistance in doing the will of God? Yes, he did. Did Paul face resistance in doing the will of God? Yes, he did. Did the early church face resistance in doing the will of God? Yes, they did. Do missionaries, do ministries face resistance? Yes, we do. Do disciples like us face resistance even if we're doing exactly what God has called us to do? Yes, we do. The truth is difficulty or lack thereof does not define God's will. If God said it, if God confirmed it, I think Jesus would say, stay with it. Don't quit. Don't doubt in the dark, someone has said, what God has said in the day. Just because it's hard does not mean you are not right where you're supposed to be. You measure decisions by how you make them, not the result. You never know what God is wanting to do. When I do premarital counseling, the very first session is how do you know And what confidence do you have that this is what God wants? I want you to share with me your convictions about your confidence that this woman or this man is the person God would have you marry and be united to in a covenant of trust for life. Because this is reality. The reality is marriage, as much as you look forward to it and desire to do it, is not easy. And there will be seasons that are hard, maybe harder than you ever imagined. And in those seasons, you need to know with lockdown conviction, I'm right where God wants me to be. It's not whether I get through, it's how I get through. You need that foundation. If God calls you to ministry, God calls you to a church, God calls you to a mission field, God calls you to a place of service and ministry, you measure that decision by how you make it. Is God in it? Has God confirmed it? Has God validated it? And if He has, despite how many headwinds or how hard it is, how difficult the marriage, how difficult the ministry, stay with it. Trust the Lord for it. Because obedience is not always easy. Acts chapter 19, verse 21 Paul finishes ministry in Ephesus, and the Bible says, Paul purposed by the Spirit of God, verse 21, to go to Jerusalem. And then he said, I also must see Rome. Turn with me to Acts 21, as he's headed to fulfill that purpose of the Holy Spirit, that conviction of his heart obeying the calling of God to go to Jerusalem, on to Rome, I want you to see some of the resistance that can can occur and some of the temptation to adjust course when it's hard or in anticipation of difficulty. He's sailing to Jerusalem. He arrives in Syria, verse 3, chapter 21. He says, we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. So they're sailing, headed to Jerusalem, he kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, 
It's on the coast. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. Now, I want you to notice verse 4. After looking up the disciples in that area, we stayed there seven days. And they, the disciples entire, kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set his foot in Jerusalem. Don't go. Bad things are going to happen. It's going to be hard. Move down to verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, that's one of the deacons of Acts 6, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses, and as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he, Agabus, took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, the author Luke and those, Philip the evangelist, Agabus the prophet, and whatever disciples had gathered, when we had heard this, as well, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Why? Resistance there. Things will be hard there. Your life will be threatened there. He was purposed by the Holy Spirit. They were informed by the Holy Spirit. It was going to be hard. Now watch what Paul says, verse 13. Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, they fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Now, I wanted to highlight this for you because we tend to think that if it's going to be hard, if persecution is imminent, if lives are bruised or made difficult by doing what God has commissioned us to do, we ought to adjust our course. And sometimes people will actually inform us of the difficulty of the journey we're on, and we need to stay with it if God has confirmed it. Trust Him in it. Be persuaded. And you know the story. Yes, Paul went to Jerusalem. Yes, these things happened. Yes, he was incarcerated. Yes, he was dispatched to Rome after appealing to Caesar. But it was in Rome, under arrest, Caesar's household heard the gospel of God. The Word of God, the work of God, the call of God, despite resistance to that work and that calling. When you obey, it is not always easy. If God said it, if God affirmed it, stay with it. Don't quit. Trust Him in it. Go back with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, and one other, by the way, before we leave this point. By the way, you don't always end up where you are headed, even if Jesus is in the boat even if he has commanded it. I want you to notice verse 45. Commanded them to get into the boat, to go to the other side, to where? Bethsaida. Bethsaida is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to the north, where the Jordan empties into the Sea of Galilee. 
I want you to look at verse 53. After Jesus gets in the boat, John's gospel said when they received, verse 21, when they received Jesus into the boat, parallel passage, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. Gennesaret is north and west. Gennesaret is not Bethsaida. Gennesaret is near Capernaum. Gennesaret is known by way of translation, the paradise of Galilee. And my takeaway from that is, you don't ever fully know where God wants you to go. You just play it out. He'll take you where He wants you to go. You you stay with it. You stay with Him. You're obedient, and watch what He does. It may be someplace you never imagined. Trust Him. Even with Jesus in the boat, you may end up in a different place than you thought. Conviction, crucible conviction number two. Hard places have high purposes. Challenges have a purpose, high purpose. When it's hard, I think Jesus would say, it is so you can see me in a new and critical way. This hard space is so you can see me and learn about me. It's about revealing and refining. You can learn in difficulty things you cannot learn when there is wind in the sail and when it's easy. Charles Spurgeon said, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have gotten in my comfortable, easy times and happy hours might amount to the amount I would put on the head of a penny. But the good I have received from my sorrows, pains, griefs, and challenges is altogether incalculable. Trials and hard times are not meant to just train you. They're meant to reveal God to you, to reveal Him in a way that you needed to know but you didn't know, to help you understand who He is, how He is, and what He can do. His capacity, His compassion, His ability, His care and concern. We don't have time to turn to it, but I want you to note it that in Daniel chapter 3, the fiery furnace, three obedient, doing the will of God men, learn something about God and the fire they otherwise would not have known. Heat the furnace up seven times hotter. Bind Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, cast them into the fire. The mighty men appointed to do that perished because of the heat of the blaze. They were cast into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar, were there not three men that we cast bound into the fire? The answer, certainly there were three. Nebuchadnezzar, look, I see four based, four men walking about in the midst of the fire. They're loosed without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of the gods. The truth of this, and there's debate about whether this is the Son of God, the ever-present help in a time of trouble, or some angel dispatched by God for protection and care, The bottom line is these men in the midst of the furnace, despite their obedience and convictions, experienced 
a revelation of God about his unique presence, about his sustaining power and protecting power. They learned about the abiding presence of God and provision of God in the midst of the crucible of that fiery furnace. And I just want to say before moving on that there are things that you will learn about Jesus in the dark and difficulty you will never learn in the sunshine of success. My power, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, is made perfect, teleos. It reaches its fullest expression in your weakness. Ask the now, when you have nothing, when you can't row, when you can't stand, where you can't continue, you feel like I can't go another day, another hour in this circumstance, that is the special stage of divine revelation, the power of God displaying its full-orbed wonder on the stage of your weakness and need, which is why Paul said, I'm going to boast in my weakness, not because my weakness all of a sudden didn't feel like a thorn, but because in my weakness, the thorn I experienced the power of God, the presence of God. Psalm 119, 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before the tough times, I was refined by the affliction, the difficulty. But now I keep your word. And Psalm 119, 68, thou art good. It's a revelation, not just a refining. You're good and you do good. I learn things about the person of God, and I'm transformed by this pressure from God. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might know Him and be transformed by Him. Crucible conviction number three, life lesson, a key truth for hard times. In difficult places, you are prone to not recognize me. Disciples, in our humanity, in difficult places, you are prone to not recognize me. Look at verse 49, Mark 6. They saw him walking on the sea, but they supposed that it was a ghost. Not only did they not recognize him, ghost in that culture was an adversarial evil. Ghost is not an angel. Ghost is an evil. So not only did they not recognize him, who they or what they recognized, they assumed to be something or someone they needed to fear, which is why it says they were terrified. They saw him and they were all terrified. Because in difficult places, you're not prone to recognize him, and you might even be afraid of what and who it is that is coming to you that he may leverage or use in order to help you. In your humanity, you're prone to not recognize me, I think Jesus would say. As I'm walking past, as I'm revealing myself, disciples in tough places tend to miss my presence and my unrivaled capacity. Think Luke 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. May it not be said of us what was said of them. Jesus said of them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets had spoken. They were discouraged. They were despairing. And then he walks with them, and he talks with them. And they say at the conclusion of that, when their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. 
And they said to one another, were our hearts not burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Here they are with him, but they didn't recognize him. It's not because they couldn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him. It was prevented because their heart was slow. They were distracted by the circumstances, by his death, by the loss, by the discouragement. They were distracted from realizing the reality that the one who said he would resurrect and rise again actually had, and they were able to walk with him. They were foolish in the sense they didn't own the the prophetic promises of God. They didn't experience the realities that were promised to them because their circumstances prevented them, distracted them. I want to argue the reason the disciples in the boat didn't see Jesus or didn't recognize Jesus is not because he was weird or he was dressed like Casper, but because he came in a way they didn't expect at a time they didn't expect. Yes, it's true that their hearts were hard in the sense that they hadn't learned anything from the previous miracles. But I want to argue it's because he showed up at a time and in a way that they didn't anticipate at all. And I think the truth for you is, is that because he is who he says he is, I do see, even in the darkest night, I know exactly where you are. I know how much your heart and your reality is troubled, how you're struggling. I see, and I care, and I'm coming. I will comfort you. I will support you, but I'm coming in a way you don't expect at a time you don't expect. Don't miss me. Look for me. And I'm not arguing that the promise for every disciple is the Lord himself will walk by a theophany, a Christophany, God present. I am arguing that God will dispatch by His grace, because He can, agents who represent Him to support you in the calling and the life and the ministry and the reality you have as His disciple and follower of Christ. There's an interesting passage in Acts chapter 18 where Paul is being resisted and blasphemed. He's come to the community of Corinth. He's going to do ministry there. Verse 6 says, they, the Jews, which he went to first, they resisted and blasphemed him. And it says in verse 9 that he turned to the Gentiles and the Lord appeared to him. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, so a supernatural revelation. And this is what the Lord said to Paul in the face of serious opposition and difficulty. Do not be afraid any longer. Implication, you have been afraid. This is really difficult. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. Now watch the last clause in verse 10. I'm with you. Nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to attack you. This is the ground or reason. For I have many people in this city. 
not only am I with you, I have representatives to support you. And as you are working and laboring and serving and sacrificing and persevering in the ministry space or the family space or the marriage space or the workplace space, I want you to know I'm with you, and I have many allies to support you. Look for me. Don't miss me. I do what I say I can do. Anecdotally and personally, I could share story after story today of seasons and situations where God validated His concern for me, my ministry, my family. Several years ago, Karen and I and Parker traveled up to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho to get some treatment, some medical treatment from a specialist that had been recommended to us. We had some health challenges in our home, severe ones, and a ministry colleague and Global Missions had a resource that had been helpful to missionaries who were dealing with some of these challenges, and he recommended this specialist in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So we decided we would go and invest the time and the resources to be helped. And we arrive, and we check in, and we meet the doctor, and we go through the paperwork, and the next day is our first appointment. We arrive early on Tuesday morning for our appointment. We walk in. He begins to examine my son, and then he looks over at me, and he says, what are you, uh, what are you doing tonight? I said, what do you mean? He said, what are you doing for dinner? And I said, I don't know. We haven't decided. He said, well, I would like, my wife and I would like to take you and your family out to eat. How many of you have been to the doctor where they want to invite you to dinner? (laughs) Five-star resort, Lake Coeur d'Alene. He picks us up at 6 o'clock in a Ford F-150 crew cab. We travel to the eating place. It was five-star. Partway through the meal, his wife looked over and said, "Uh, what are you doing this weekend? I said, I don't know. She said, we're heading to Los Angeles for a birthday party with my mother, who's turning 90. And we have this condominium over at Silver Mountain at the resort, the ski resort. It's empty. We'd like you to use it on us if you'd like to use it. How many of you have been invited by a doctor to go to? (laughs) You know, we got back to the hotel after the meal, after the conversation. And I looked at Karen and I said, what in the world just happened? That's not normal. Wouldn't you agree with that? You just said by laughing, you know it's not normal. I'll tell you what it is. It's supernatural. It's God doing what God does because he has many in this city. He has many in the community and world in which you live. He has allies to support you. Don't miss him. Look for him. It'll come in a time you don't expect, in a way you don't expect, maybe through a person you wouldn't expect, but God is good for what God does. He sees, He cares, He comes, He provides, and you're inclined not to see Him. And if He comes in a way that feels adversarial or so out of the norm, you can actually be afraid. That's what happened when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. They didn't expect that in the Egyptian palace. The Bible says they were afraid when he revealed himself. Go to the upper room, Jesus revealing himself to the disciples. What they did is what we would do. We're afraid. They were afraid. They didn't recognize him. 
because they didn't expect it. Disciple of Jesus Christ, here's a truth for hard times. He is coming. He does do what he says he will do. He does help in the ways he promises to help. Keep rowing. Look for the revelation of his character and his person. And look for the support that he promises. Stay faithful in the midst of the storm. And don't be afraid if you don't understand or don't expect him to do what he is doing. Finally, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. Matthew 14 is Matthew's story of this experience of Jesus walking on the water. It's interesting to me that this story is the only gospel narrative that includes Peter walking on the water. Not just Jesus walking on the water, but Peter walking on the water. Matthew tells that story. It's interesting, Mark's gospel Mark was a colleague, an associate of Peter. Many believe that Mark is the writer because he's working with Peter in the content. But there's no revelation in the narrative about Peter walking on the water. That's an interesting thing. And some would say that's because Peter was embarrassed by how far he didn't walk on the water. And maybe John didn't include it because he's either protecting Peter from that embarrassment or he's humbled by the fact that Peter made any steps on the water. Nonetheless, it's only here. And that's what I want to end with today. One final point of crucible conviction. And I want you to hear this because this is not just holding up in the thick of it. This is stepping out in the midst of it. In the toughest of times, by faith, you can do the normally impossible. In the toughest of times, by faith, you can do the humanly and normally impossible. Matthew 14. It's a ghost, they say in verse 26, and they cried out in fear. But immediately, verse 27, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Familiar. This is the additional perspective. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, now this is a first-class condition, which means since it's you. It's an emphatic way of saying since it's you. He heard his voice. He knows his voice. Since it's you, Lord, since it's you, command me. Bid me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. It's a command, aorist active imperative. Come, right now, come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water. You see that? He walked on the water. That's impossible. And he came toward Jesus. I just want to pause there and acknowledge that he is doing in the midst of the storm, what nobody had ever done. Some would say this was typical of Peter's rashness. And you read some commentators would say this was presumptuous. Like when he said, nobody, everybody's going to fall away, but I won't fall away. This is Peter being Peter. 
Now, it certainly can be true that he had a personality that lent him to this kind of decisive, bombastic choices. But I want to suggest to you that based on the construction of this passage, the issue isn't walking on the water, it's coming to Jesus. The emphasis is on coming to Jesus because he recognized him, because he wanted to come to him. Bid me to come to you. He did not say, let me walk on the water, but let me come to you. I believe the water was a means to an end, not the goal. If it were not so, verse 31, after he began to sink, but seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me, which is a life lesson in and of itself. Take your eyes off Jesus, lose your faith and focus, you're going to sink. He began to sink, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Notice what he didn't say. Why were you so proud? Why were you so rash? Why were you so foolish? Why didn't you trust me? The issue is faith in Jesus Christ and stepping out in faith because you want to be with him. You want to be connected to him. You want to commune with him. Since it is you, I want to know you. I want to experience you. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I don't care what's going on. I don't care what the risk. It's you. And I want to be with you even in the midst of the storm. And I'm willing to get out of this boat in the midst of the storm to be with you. That's his passion. And if your passion is to please Him, to be with Him, to experience the glory that is His, you can do the impossible. You can do the humanly impossible, what is not normally done. John Chrysostom says, this request of Peter's is not due to the hope of making a show. It's the expression of impulsive, passionate love. Because somehow he seems to have realized that the Lord would enable his followers to do as he had done. He was able to share in his master's glory. Now listen. However many steps Peter didn't take, He took more than any other man has taken. And it says Jesus stretched out his arm, which means he walked a ways. It's not like Jesus had elastic arms. He got from where he was in the midst of the storm with his eyes fixed on Jesus. And the only time he lost the capacity to do What is normally not natural to do is when he took his eyes off Jesus. When he started looking at all of the reasons to not trust. To be distracted by all of the legitimate threats and forfeited the opportunity that was on his heart to realize. My conclusion today is to Have a passion in the midst of your storm 
in the difficulty that is raging in your life, have a passion to be with him in the midst of the storm. Ask him to allow you to come to him and experience from him capacity granted by God alone. Oh, I wish I had time to go to Hebrews chapter 11 today when Moses trusted God. And because he had faith in God, the waters parted. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that despite the threats of Pharaoh and the enemies, by faith, the waters parted. He didn't walk on water. He walked on dry land through the water. And the Bible says he endured because he set his focus on God. You look at Hebrews 11, there's a lot of supernatural things. Sarah got pregnant. She shouldn't have been pregnant. The walls fell flat and they shouldn't have fallen flat. Women received the dead by by the resurrection to life. That shouldn't have happened. Miracles Armies fled. Fires were quenched. God has the ability to deliver you and enable you to do, by faith, focused on Him, what otherwise you could never do. If I'm Peter, I want to tell this story everywhere I go. I've walked on water, and you can too. And the same faith that sustained him miraculously on the waves was exercised when he was drowning underneath the waves. Lord, save me. And if you'll step out in faith, even if you get distracted and begin to sink, he's a gracious rescuer for the little of faith. Can you say amen to that? Hey, it's going to be hard. It may be hard now. There's no forecast I can see in the reality of our culture where things are going to get better. And we're going to need to hold up and we're going to need to be able to step out because He is the Son of God and He does what He says He can do. Father, thank You for the opportunity to open Your Word today. The big life lesson that we can make it and we can do more than we ever imagined in the darkest places and in the hardest spaces because you certainly are the Son of God. We trust you today. We want to be faithful to you today. We want to persevere by grace today. We want you to display your unrivaled glory on the stage of our weakness so the world can know you and we can experience you in the richest ways possible. Since it's you, we want to come. Grant us grace to that end, I pray for us all. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said,